The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Good afternoon. Welcome. This is Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm, and we are honored and delighted to invite each of you to attend the teleconference for this month. The topic is H-1B cap cases for fiscal year 2023. And everybody may be like, wait, 2022 just started. What do you mean 2023? And as we all know, the USCIS fiscal year starts on October 1st, so the and gets done on September 30th. So this is for the fiscal year 2023 cap. And joining me today are two of my brilliant esteemed colleagues who I'm honored to call as my colleagues. They are Kenya Sanders and Timothy Sachet, whom we fondly refer to as TJ. Both Kenya and TJ have been with us over a decade apiece. I know Kenya joined us over 10 years ago, over 20 years experience at this time. Um, and TJ has at least over maybe a 10 or 12 years, a dozen years at this time, brilliant, smart people. So you're hopefully going to have a fun ride with us as we talk about H-1B cap cases, how to strategize, what to do, and what are the issues for you, both as employers or employees or individuals going through the process. Um, so Kenya, let me start with you. What is the H-1B cap and how does it work? Okay, so the H-1B cap is an annual limit on the number of new H-1B workers. So this is, which is set at 65,000. However, only 58,500 of these numbers are generally available because there is a few numbers set aside for nationals of Chile and Singapore. Now, there are also an additional 20,000 extra slots for individuals who have completed a master's degree from an accredited U.S. nonprofit or public university. Now, the 65,000 is generally called as a regular quota, and once that quota is used up, the, those who have a U.S. master's degree from an accredited nonprofit or public university, this is U.S. university, will be selected um, from, you know, from that as well. The 20,000 will be selected from the regular cap as well. So what, what USCIS does is first they select, um, they run a lottery and select 20,000 uh, for the master's quota, um, and then whoever is left who did not get selected in the 20,000 gets included in the quota pick for the 65,000. So those who have a U.S. Uh, master's degree from an accredited public or nonprofit university gets two bites at the apple. Now, what you need to be careful about is 
that the master's portrait, we make sure that the master's is from a public or private non-profit university. When you are filing, if the degree is from a for-profit university and they accidentally approve it under the master's quota, they can then deny it and revoke the petition at the time an extension is filed. That's a very good point, and we see this all the time, and people panic because it happens sometimes after five years, ten years, um, you know, and, and the, the reason that, hey, the government made the mistake by approving it initially uh, often doesn't work as an argument. So, yes, you certainly want to be very careful that it is a master's degree from an accredited U.S. nonprofit or a public university, as Kenya just pointed out. Thank you, Kenya. So, teacher, I'm going to ask you to jump in. I know we started this new selection process just in the past year or two. What is this pre-selection, the pre-registration, what happens, how can an employer file it, how can we, they improve their, their you know, opportunities for their employees to get selected, because that's a question we always get asked, can, you help, can the, her hiring the wonderful and terrific Moosey Law Firm team help me to get the selected in the cap or in the registration, um, and all of that. So let me hand it over to you, TJ. Right. So, you know, kind of as you said, the selection process, the CAP process is a bit different um, the last couple of years. This year will be the third year that they're going under this, this new process, what we call the, the pre-selection process. So uh, essentially under this, this process, employers that want to file, <coughs> excuse me, CAP subject H-1B petitions, including those that are going under the master's CAP, so we're doing the regular and the master's CAP, actually electronically register. So there's no forms, nothing like that to fill out at this point. No filing fees except for a $10 registration fee. So essentially the employer is required to create an, what's called an H-1B registrant account in the MyUSCS portal. You Google MyUSCS, you can find it. Um, and you, they need to do this even if they're having an attorney help them with the filing. Um, as of today, USCIS has not announced uh, what registration time period will be. Last year, I believe the registration ran from March 9th to March 25th. The year before that, the dates were a little bit different. Um, they're required to give at least 14 days, but I think we've seen up to, I think the first year is about 20 days, somewhere around then. Last year is about 15 or 16, so this year would be at least 14. So as part of this process, the employer and the employee have to provide just some basic information about the company and the employee. Um, they're not required to provide any information. This is actually a question that uh, I get a lot, Sheila and Connie, you probably get this too. Um, not required to provide any information about the position, the job, the salary, or anything like that. It's just basic, essentially biographic background information on the employer and the employee. And by submitting the registration, the, the employee is pretty much attesting that each registration is actually connected with a bona fide job offer and that if the registration is selected, that the employer intends to actually file a corresponding H-1B petition. Now, you're not 100% required to if the employee leaves or if the job is, is lost somehow. Just keep a record of that in case it's ever questioned. Um, so once you submit this basic information about the company and the employee, 
there's a $10 registration fee, so not much. Much better than a couple years ago. We had to you know, pay a ton of money and hope you get selected, including attorney's fees. Um, and then if the registration is selected, you would then have a 90-day period to file a full H-1B petition with the, with the filing fees and all that with USCIS. USCIS will provide, um, you know, if you're selected, uh, a selection notice that states the exact days that you have to file the, the full H-1B petition. Um, and it will also state whether the H-1B was selected under the regular or the master's cap. So this is where, you know, before Kanye was talking about the, the master's cap and erroneously file under the master's cap, now with this new selection process, if you file it erroneously under the, the master's cap and then you try and file your H-1B petition with all your education docs, there's a good chance your petition will get denied uh, because they would see, oh, this was selected on the master's cap, but you don't have a qualifying master's degree. So it's very important to, to make sure that you do submit it under the proper cap. Um, and then in the, in the past, USCS allowed the filings between April 1st and June 30th to submit the full H-1B petition. Um, and then if USCS has not re- received enough H-1B filings to meet the 65 plus 20,000 annual quota, it will select another lottery and possibly then another lottery. So uh, last year we, they, select, they had a second lottery. This year they're having a second and a third lottery. Um, so we're still in the process of, of, of you know, working on cases for the third lottery. Um, and then registration. So a company can submit up to two uh, registrations for 250 employees at a time. Um, you pay the registration fee for the total n- number of employees you're registering at one time, but it can't exceed 250 per registration. You can submit another registration for another 250, but that one registration needs to have uh, at most 250. Um, and then one thing, a very important thing to keep in mind, is that the employer may only submit one registration per employee. So if one employer submits a regist- like two registrations, for the same employee, the USCS automatic system will automatically generate a, a rejection or a denial of that registration. And if the lottery has already been conducted, you don't get a chance to, to re-register. So it's just something to, to be aware of and, and have processes and procedures in place to make sure you don't accidentally submit the registration for, two, for the, the same beneficiary two times. Thank you very much, TJ. Um, yeah, so it looks like a fairly complicated process, and I know some uh, law firms uh, literally are uh, charging, I believe, $750 or $1,000 for the pre-registration. But at the multi-law firm, it is peanuts in comparison, less than a quarter or a third or one-tenth or something like that. Very inexpensive because we do look at uh, eligibility and criteria and make sure that it's done consistent with the law. And then obviously when you hire the firm, you would get a, uh, the, uh, a special sort of standard discount as an existing uh, client that's helping the processing of all your cases. So the next question that is often asked of us is, hey, how do I know if I'm even subject to the H-1B cap or quota? Why, what are the criteria and who would be exempt, for example? So generally, an employee who has never previously held H-1B status in the past would be subject to the H-1B cap. Also, if the person was counted against the cap in the past, 
but has lived outside the United States for at least one continuous year, then such a person will have an option either to choose to be counted against the cap in order to receive the full six-year period in H-1B status, or the person may say, you know what, I just want to use the remainder of the time on my H-1B, so if I used up two years before, I'm happy with just applying for the four years and giving my shots, uh, you know, and applying for the green card so I don't have to leave the country. So that person would basically have an option whether to choose to be counted against the cap or not choose to be counted if they want the full six years or not. So who is exempt from it besides the ones we just explained is a physician, a medical doctor, uh, who has obtained a J-1 waiver through the Conrad program or the Interested Governmental Agency program. Pretty much most of them tend to be H-1B cap exempt physicians. And by their very nature, certain employers are cap-exempt. So who are these employers? It's generally an employment at and by a university and their nonprofit affiliates, usually it's like university hospitals, etc., as well as nonprofit organizations and governmental research organizations. Uh, we have done several cases where there's a gray area and there's a lot of back and forth and it may look like somebody may be cap-exempt, but really, like for example, some community colleges may not be. Um, so you have to be very careful that you discuss this with your attorney to make a determination if the employer is cap-exempt because you don't want to file it and then find out that it's not, the person is not cap-exempt and now you have to wait and lose another year and a half of time for the employee to be able to work with you. So with that, I'm going to invite Kenya to discuss, so what are the qualifications? What is required for an employee to qualify for an H-1B petition filing and approval? Okay. So by definition, the H-1B visa category is called the H-1B specialty occupation position. And the way specialty occupation is defined is that it's a position that requires at the minimum a bachelor's degree or the equivalent in a specific field. The specific field that is related to the position that is being offered. So that is the basic um, um, requirement. Then the foreign national candidate must possess the required education or the equivalent at the time of filing the H-1B petition. Now, with the introduction of the registration period, it's not required for the individual to have obtained the degree at the time of the registration, but the individual must have acquired the degree before the petition is filed. Um, now, if a physician requires a bachelor's degree in any field, okay, if the employer says, gives a range of degrees or says any bachelor's degree, then that physician doesn't qualify for H-1B. It's not considered to be a specialty occupation. As I said earlier, not discussing it again, it has to be a degree in a specific field that is related to the duties that are to be performed in that position. 
Now, if you don't have a degree in a specific field, you have a degree and then, but you have lots of experience, you can prepare an education plus experience evaluation to show that your education plus experience equals to a degree in that field. But as a warning, USCIS is really scrutinizing these education plus experience evaluations. They are requiring these evaluations to be performed by professors who are authorized to grant college credit for equivalent experience at universities that grant college credit for experience. So not anybody can provide those equivalency evaluations. So you need to keep that in mind. Now, if the beneficiary does not have the physical diploma at the time of filing, again, not at registration, the uh, beneficiary should obtain a letter from the school's registrar or deed verifying that they have completed all the requirements for the degree and all they're just waiting is to get the physical diploma. So Thank you very much. Thank you, Kenya. So let's then jump to TJ to describe and explain a little bit more in detail of what is required in order to qualify for the U.S. Master's cap. We already talked about, can you explain the 20,000 slots for individuals who have completed a master's degree from a U.S. nonprofit or public university? But there's, again, always, what do they say? The devil is always in the details. And how can we, as the employer, if you're the employer or the employee, how do you know should I apply under the general quota just to be safe because I'm not really sure which university is technically a nonprofit or public university and all of those issues. So, TJ? Right, right. So, you know, like we said, there are 20,000 additional master's degree slots, but it is very important to, to make sure that you register under the appropriate, um, the appropriate um, lottery. The, to, and, and to double-check the actual degree to make sure it qualifies as a, a proper master's degree. So the person, the employee, needs to have completed the degree. The school must be properly accredited by a nationally recognized accrediting agency or association. Pre-accreditation, if the school is in pre-accreditation status at the time the degree is awarded, that also counts or qualifies. Additionally, the school must be a, a public or private nonprofit institution. If neither of these requirements are met, the degree does not qualify for the master's cap exemption. For instance, most state schools would be considered public. The, and then, you know, you see other schools like Duke University, I believe, is a private institution, but it is a nonprofit institution. And there are websites you can go at on to, to find out these things, particularly for the, whether a school is accredited. The Department of Education keeps a database where you can look it up. And another thing, another very key point here is when does the degree have to be earned, right? So you have to have earned a, at least a master's degree from a U.S. institution. But the question becomes, well, what if I'm registering in, on, on March 5th and I don't have that master's degree because I'm graduating in May? Well, USCIS has actually explicitly stated that, that in, in this situation, so long as you obtain the degree before you actually file the H-1B petition, that you can still register under the master's cap, even if you don't have the master's degree at that time. It's just really, really important to, one, ensure that you do actually earn that master's degree, and two, you don't 
file the H-1B petition if you're selected before the master's degree is actually awarded. Um, and it's got to be within that, that 90-day period that USCIS gives you. So if you register under the master's cap expecting to graduate, get your degree that May, but you, you fail a course, you could be in trouble and not you know, have to just wait till the next lottery to try again. Um, or if you, you know, you're planning to graduate in May and you file the H-1B petition, select it on the master's cap, file the H-1B petition in April, well, your case is likely to be denied in that case. So just definitely make sure that you wait to file the H-1B petition until after the degree has been awarded. Thank you very much, TJ. So, yeah, that's a, definitely an issue for um, – so generally the cases that will be filed then, if they open it up like the last in the prior years from April 1st, April, May, and June, that mostly people who graduated not this year in 2022 but who had already graduated in the last couple of years but were not selected for the lottery, they would – or if they are for international foreign people applying from abroad who have got bachelor's or master's degrees in another, another country but applying under the general quota – they would apply in April and May, and most of the U.S. graduates who are graduating this year would probably apply in June based on the example that both Kenya and you just shared with us. Okay, right. so the next question that uh, we often get asked, and that is very important to understand, is, you know, what happens to the employee or beneficiary if they wish to change the status to H-1B within the United States um, particularly if the F1 optional practical training or the STEM OPT or the regular OPT is expiring well before October 1st, which is the start date of the new fiscal year and the start date of the H1 petition. Now, many of you have heard of this, the automatic cap gap extensions, et cetera. So let's discuss that and explain it because a lot of fresh kids from college and employers who are newer may be less familiar with this concept. So generally, an employee is able to change status to H-1B within the United States with, an, uh, with a start date of October 1st, only the, the, that particular H-1 employee, the potential H-1 employee, is already in a valid non-immigrant status, which will continue at least until and through September 30th of that year. So in this case, it will be September 30th, 2022. If the beneficiary is in F1 status, then there's actually a legal exception that the government, the Department of Homeland Security made several years ago, where they basically said that if the student's F1 status or the OPT or STEM OPT ends prior to September 30th, then that student may be eligible for an automatic cap gap extension until September 30th assuming that four conditions are met. And what are the four conditions? One, the petition is filed before the expiration of the OPT or before the end of the grace period. Second, a change of status request uh, has been requested on the H-1B petition. Third, that the start date for the H-1 status is October 1st of that year, and four, that the case is eventually approved. And I guess last year, some of us saw some weird, uh, I guess, denials from USCIS where they were saying we can't approve 
cases because even if somebody was filing in November saying you didn't request an October 1st start date, and I wonder if it had something to do with this particular DHS regulation requiring that all four of these criteria must be met, and sometimes officers who are newer get a little confused between different rules and different situations. Uh, but this is only for the automatic cap gap extension, right? So we need all four of the conditions that I just explained to be met. And it is important to remember that registration for the lottery does not provide any cap gap benefits. So just because you've applied or pre-registered doesn't protect you. A person is able to benefit from the cap gap only when the H-1B registration has been selected and the cap subject H-1 petition is filed according to the normal existing cap gap rules. My final point I'm going to make is if to be eligible for the cap gap under this registration, under this registration process, a student selected in the registration and whose F1 or OPT or STEM OPT ends during the 90-day period that is given to file the H1B cap petition must file the petition before the end of that F1 status or the OPT, regardless of when the 90-day period ends. So just because you have 90 days doesn't mean you want to wait till the end of the 90 days because you might have lost your status and then the USCIS cannot approve your change of status within the United States. So for these situations, it is important to prepare the H-1B petition as early as possible to ensure cap-gap eligibility. And there are several steps that are involved, as we all know, in preparing an H-1B petition, including preparing the labor condition application, the LCA, from the U.S. Department of Labor in order to file with the petition, and it needs to be certified before filing the petition. And as we've seen over the last several years, there are times when the Department of Labor is, has delays and technical glitches uh, with their flag system for processing the LCAs. So in your interest as the employer and the employee that you start the process early, that you get the LCA, that you have everything ready to go well within that time so that there's no out-of-status issue. So later the case is started, the more likely that you could run into the risk of not getting the LCA done in time to file the CAP subject petition before the end of the F1 status or the OPT status. Kenya, I know you were, um, you look like you're dying to say something. Well, yeah, so I just want to explain as to what the cap, the period that the cap gap uh, covers. Now, the cap gap extension starts when the student's current period of F1 status ends. As long as the H1, as Sheila said, the H1B petition is filed before it ends. So regardless of whether the student is in OPT at that time or, you know, just on F1 status, yeah, they are within their grace period of their F1. The the cap gap applies to them. If the student is in OPT at the time of filing, then the OPT work authorization may be extended until September 30th. If the student is not in OPT, or if the petition is filed during their 60-day grace period, the student may remain in the U.S however, may not work. So they can remain in the U.S. until the H-1B petition is approved or denied, okay? but they cannot work. 
If the petition is denied or revoked, the cap cap extension will terminate upon, you know, as soon as, as the date is denied or the date is revoked. If the petition is still pending after September 30th, the student is in a period of authorized stay, but he or she does not have any permission to work after September 30th, as I already said. Again, the CAPCAP work authorization ends on September 30th. So if the petition is pending beyond September 30th, they can remain in the U.S., but they cannot work. So the, the work authorization um, only extends until September 30th. Now, in order to obtain proof of CAPCAP extension, the student must contact the school BSO and request an updated I-20. This is a student's responsibility, not the DSO. So don't wait for the DSO to contact you and ask you uh, about your cap gap or whether you need an I-20. It's the student's responsibility, and they need to be proactive about that. Good point, Kenya. I know this is such a common because students don't understand and realize that they have so many responsibilities while being on F1 or F1 OPT status in particular. So, TJ, I know that there's lots of questions about, you know, I'm waiting, I can't travel, I'm dying to go home, I have to meet my parents, my grandparents, someone's getting married, someone's not feeling well. What ha is it recommended that people travel while all of this is going on? What's, what's our advice in general at the firm? Right, right. So it's, it's actually strongly recommended that students do not travel outside the U.S. during the CAPGAP extension period. USS considers if you file a, uh, if you request a change of status and then depart the U.S. while your request to change your status is pending, USS considers that request to change your status abandoned. So what they would do in that situation is they would uh, they would issue you an H-1B approval, but they would say, "Sorry, we're not going to grant you your request to change status within the United States. We're going to approve your H-1B for consular notification, requiring you to get an H-1B visa and and come back." So if the student uses, leaves the U.S. while their cap gap, um, while their H-1B petition is pending during their cap gap period, it's recommended that they just simply wait outside the United States until they get their approval, um, which would be for presumably an October 1st start date, get their H-1B visa, and then come back. The employer could also upgrade the H-1B petition if it's still pending and they're stuck abroad to premium processing to hopefully get a, a decision a little bit quicker. Um, another thing to keep in mind is if, if the employee is not in F1 status, their current status expires prior to October 1st, and that's important because that's the H-1B cap start date, and he or she cannot maintain their underlying non-immigrant status until at least September 30th, then they'll not actually be able to change status within the United States. So what, what we, what, you generally see this if someone's in, let's say, H4 dependent status, and it expires on, let's say, August 1st. So they're filing their H-1B cap case requesting the start date of October 1st. So there's going to be that gap. So in, in that situation, they want to either do something to extend their H-4, H4 status past October, uh, excuse me, August to cover that gap, um, or they want to just be prepared to leave, get their approval notice for consular notification, get the H-1B visa based on that H-1B approval, and then return to the, the U.S. to begin their employment. It's, it's really, travel is, is one of those questions that 
they're, uh, Kanye and Sheila, you guys probably see this all the time, there are about a billion different scenarios that impact the advice that, that should be given. You know, if the petition is approved, is it pending? Um, do you have another petition pending? What date do you plan to travel? Have you filed yet? Have you not filed yet? Are you going to file when you're going to come back, et cetera, et cetera? So it's really important if there is travel, particularly when you're in this cap-gap process or getting ready to prepare your H-1B petition, that you do speak with an attorney first to, to discuss these issues and, and the risks. Thank you, TJ. And it's, it's so right. And this, yes, I know people say, but, you know, my friend did this or somebody did that. And it's true that there are exceptions, as TJ just pointed out. There are situations when, you know, it may be safe and okay if the H-1 petition is approved, but you still have the F-1 visa in your passport, the visa stamp foil, and you have, you're still got the F-1 OPT, and you're not in the cap cap, but you're actually, you have a valid I-20 to cover you for the entire period. Maybe you could travel. There's, like we said, so many multiple gray areas that are beyond the scope of this, you know, 30-minute to 40-minute discussion where we are providing this big, broad overview to help you plan. Uh, I see we're kind of running a little bit tight on time, but so let's try to make sure we always try to wrap this up within 30 to 45 minutes, and that's our goal, and we will try to do that today as well. So very briefly, I'll talk about the fees for an H-1 cap case. I think most of you can look at it. I know the government keeps changing the location and where to file and what to do and what form to include. So be careful that if you're doing it in-house and you're not using a, a top lawyer that's keeping up to date with the latest changes, that you double and triple check on the morning that you're filing a petition, including where the check and whom it's made payable to and how to write it. We see sometimes people writing it to the wrong, putting the Indian version of putting the day instead of the month first and a gazillion ways something can go wrong and the case will finally get rejected slash denied ultimately. So what's the fee? The fee is $460, which is the base filing fee, $500, which is the anti-fraud fee. Both of these ideally should be paid by the employer, not be reimbursed by the employee. Then there's the training fee. Again, the, the law requires Department of Labor requires that the $750 for employees with, with a company with 25 or less employees uh, and $1,500 uh, for a larger employer, employers with 26 or more employees. Again, this must be paid by the employer. Then there's the $4,000 border protection fee. Again, paid by the employer if the employer has 50 or more employees and more than 50% of those employees of the employees are either on H-1B and L-1A or L-1B combined because that makes you an H-1B dependent employer. So now they're slapping on this additional $4,000 border protection fee. And, you know, as we said, some employers may be exempt from some of the fees when filing a subsequent H-1B extension for the same employee. And there's also now the additional $2,500, $2,500 premium processing fee. Um, but usually when there's cap, when during the cap season, it tends to get suspended um, based on the huge volume and the USCI not being able to approve or process the case within the 15 days, calendar days or work days and all of that. So we don't know what's going to happen with that. And it really can add up. I mean, as you can see, if you add all of these 
just the government filing fees, especially if you're a cap exempt employer, you're talking, you know, good seven, eight, you know, just under $10,000. It's a lot of money. And that's not even including the lawyer legal fees um, involved. So do it right and do it properly and do it correctly. And that's the model of what I think Kenya, TJ, and myself are saying here. So let's jump to the next hot topic, which is what are the common issues that are encountered by IT consulting companies? We're still seeing them with respect to H-1B petition filings. So, Kenya, I'm going to invite you to discuss the specialty occupation issue, and TJ, I'll have you jump in and discuss the employee's qualifications and the issue regarding maintenance of status. Kenya? Yes, okay. So, specialty occupation is the majority of the RFPs we see for H-1B petition deal with specialty occupation. So, the challenge is the field of Okay. Does this position require a specific field of study uh, in order to perform? And, and also, you know, whether a minimum of a bachelor's level of training is required for this position. So it is very important of choosing the correct SOC code. The SOC code is a code for, that is related to the position for the occupational classification. So the Department of Labor tends to uh, characterize certain positions with SOC code, saying, you know, these positions do in the industry require a bachelor's degree. Majority of employers require a bachelor's degree. Some of them, they won't say that it requires a bachelor's degree. So. USCIS will kind of cotton on to that and see what the Department of Labor says. And if they don't specifically say that this position requires a bachelor's degree, they can come back and issue an RFP challenging whether this position actually requires a bachelor's degree in a specific field. This, again, is you know, where you need to be careful, where you don't want to list like multiple um, fields that would qualify because then they would again come and say, no, this, because this does not require a specific field, this is not a specialty occupation, um, you know, therefore it doesn't qualify for H1. The approval rate also tends to correspond to wage level. We saw that mostly in like before 2020, maybe even in 2020, but it's less so now, where if it's a level one, where, uh, position um, that is, um, you know, being paid a level one wage, USCIS could, you know, was challenging whether this position actually requires a bachelor's degree. Okay, it seems, you know, too basic. Um, you know, we are not seeing that, you know, too much uh, the last couple of years. Would you agree, TJ? You know, the wage level um, has not been an issue. Right, right. Yeah. I haven't seen a wage level RFE in probably two years now. Nice. And it also, I guess, also it, do, it helps that the Biden administration dropped that whole regulation where they were going to <laughs> select H1 staff registrations based on the wage levels, which, you know, there were multiple lawsuits, and thank goodness they backed out of it. They realized it wasn't worth pursuing. Uh, and thank goodness the, you know, current administration is focusing on following the law and the regulations rather than coming up and making up rules that are non-existent under the law. 
So TJ, let's quickly talk about the employees' qualifications and how they connect and the maintenance of Sabbath issues. Right. So another issue that we see, not as, not as frequently as um, specialty occupation, is can, can you show that the, the employee is actually qualified for this job? Does their degree relate to the position? Oh, it's a software developer position. Do they have a computer science or information technology-related degree? Sometimes they don't, though. They have a, a business degree or a, a weird mecha mechanical engineering, things like that that USCIS doesn't see as, as directly related to the job. So in that case, what you want to do is you want to show that their combination of education and experience is the equivalent of a related degree. And kind of talked about this and, and the requirements for the professor evaluation, et cetera. So one thing, you know, in getting that professor evaluation, and one thing USA is going to really look at is the experience letters the professors use to come to their evaluation. I won't go over the professor requirements because um, Kanye did, but these experience letters, they want to be, you want to show that they're really detailed, that they, they're detailed enough where USCIS can see, oh, this person has progressively responsible experience. So just a relieving certificate from an employer, uh, something like that, something with just like a couple words for the job duties is not going to be sufficient. So in addition to getting this expert opinion, you need to back up that expert opinion with, with strong evidence, mainly experience letters. I also like to include things like raises, promotions, things like that to, to really show that this job is progressive in nature, that they're, the person progressed in their career. And then in, in addition to qualifications, the other big RFE issue that we see, particularly with H-1B cap cases and individuals attempting to change status from F-1 to H-1B is whether they've maintained their F-1 status. We see this mainly when individuals are on day one CPT because there is you know, more heightened requirements there because generally you have to wait a year before you can actually even engage in CPT or if the individual is on their STEM OPT and they're not working at their employer's location but a third-party location, particularly for the STEM OPT, requires the employer to actually be training. So you ask a question, well, how are you really training when you're not really sitting right next to them? Um, we do live in a virtual world, though, so you know, that does happen. Um, and then another thing we see with the, with the F1 a lot, and maybe not as much during COVID, but what we do see is uh, USCIS comes back and says, we see your school is in Kentucky. That's great. You're allowed to go to that school, but you live in California, so that doesn't add up. How do you live in California and go to school in Kentucky? Um, so you'd want to establish, yeah, I, I do go. I've met, uh, met, you know, I go to all my classes. They generally meet all weekend, right? I have this, this course that, you know, for seven weekends in a row, I'm, I'm meeting Saturday and Sunday, and you want to provide evidence of that. And we do see that a lot, and I think um, now that COVID, you know, knock on wood, COVID, hopefully we'll be getting better, that, you know, students aren't permitted to work or to attend school remotely like, like they currently do. So, you know, something we probably will see more going forward as well. Thank you, TJ. You know, we've just given you a big grand overview of all of the issues connected with an H-1B petition, a cap subject filing, um, and you really get a flavor and a sense of how complicated and convoluted it can get, how there are trends where we suddenly get RFEs on issues that were not getting RFEs before, all kinds of variations and combinations. At least in the past year, the current administration of uh, Joseph R. Biden, you know, thankfully has reversed some of the harsh, harsh policies uh, and the proposed regulations of the prior administration, which almost 
seemed like they were going in the direction of pretty much either reducing or almost eliminating the H-1B uh, program, including people who'd been here 5, 10, 15 years, weren't getting renewals, H-1 extensions approved. But we are seeing a lot fewer RFEs in this year. And I think DJ pointed out in the past year or so, or even two years, but particularly in the past year. And however, we are still seeing scrutiny of specialty occupation and maintenance of status for students who are engaged in the curricular practical training that we just talked about, the day one CPTs. Um, so there's a lot of issues, a lot of complications. Again, we've just touched the tip of the iceberg and all of the issues involved. And so you really need to ensure that you're working with hopefully a, an experienced and knowledgeable team to guide you, your employ, your business, if you're a business owner, if you're the HR manager, or you as an individual, uh, certainly contact a law firm. The Multi Law Firm has a fabulous team, and both Kenya and TJ are part and leaders and coordinators as part of the H-1B non-immigrant department at the Multi Law Firm. So on behalf of myself, Sheila Multi, Kenya Sanders, TJ, and our entire Multi Law Firm team, we want to thank you for attending the teleconference today on H-1B CAP subject petitions. We want to wish you a safe, happy, healthy, and because it's February, the month of Valentine's Day, a loving, healthy, and happy uh, month of February. And until we all see you and you hear from us next month for next month's teleconference, stay safe, stay healthy, and have a fabulous afternoon. Thank you very much. Take care. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.